Good morning or early afternoon to everyone again on the call and in the room. And thank you again for joining us for today's Blogger Media Roundtable. Today we have with us Major General Tony Kukolo, Director of Force Development for the, De for the Deputy Chief of Staff G8 at Headquarters Department of the Army, along with key members of his staff, and they are here with us to discuss and take your questions on the topic of equipping and modernization programs. Before we open the floor for opening statements from General Kukolo, we have a few housekeeping items. Once the floor is open for questions, please state your name and blog or organization affiliation clearly. Also, we ask that you keep your questions succinct and to the point. This will ensure your question is answered by the appropriate subject matter expert in the room. Also, if you are not actively participating in the conversation, please keep your phone muted to eliminate any background noise. With that being said, Major General Kukolo, we open the floor to you for any opening statements. Hey, thanks, Ashley. Uh, good morning, everybody. Tony Kukolo. Again, uh, like Ashley said, I'm the uh, equipment guy uh, for the Army. Quite simply, I, uh, I ride herd on five years of uh, programming for, from everything, for everything, from ballistic underwear to attach, uh, Apache helicopters. I've got, uh, got 14 of uh, my best in the room with me. I mean, I, I, I brought down uh, the, the best I got. Uh, officers and civilians, uh, Department of the Army professionals who actually uh, monitor these programs or get equipment to the warfighters in Afghanistan and, and other locations, and, and we're ready to answer any questions you might have about equipment. Just, again, we're, if, if I could at least focus us in a couple of ways, uh, I, we, we are the equipment team. We're not the acquisition core. But we could talk about uh, the programming aspects of acquiring equipment, but, uh, but deep, deep, detailed acquisition, that's not us. Um, I will be happy to talk about execution of the current budget in fiscal year 12, happy to talk about um, the budget we just turned in for fiscal year 13, but I know I've got some uh, folks that are very familiar with the process. As you know, uh, although we're toiling away uh, on 1418, that five-year program, and, and the bills and the bill paying for that, um, we cannot speak in detail because that's all pre-decisional still. Uh, so I'd, I'd ask you any questions about 1418. We'll, we'll let you know if, if that's an impact and, uh, and, and couch our answers as such. But other than that, what I want to do is maximize the amount of time for discussion and, uh, and open it up to questions. So... Go ahead. Do you want to lead off? Yes, yeah, sure. Uh, we begin. Um, Chuck, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, good morning, gentlemen and ladies. Chuck Simmons from America's North Shore Journal. General, thank you for taking our call. Uh, I have a question about ground vehicles. Over the last decade, we've seen uh, the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan uh, necessitate adaptations uh, to the ground vehicles that we provide um, our, our soldiers in combat. And I'm thinking of the MRAP and the up-armored Humvee, as well as the up-armored packages that went on everything, including the semi-tractor trailers and the tankers and, and all of that. Where are we headed in general uh, with... Uh, future Army vehicles, and I, 
I don't want to neglect the the uh, the 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 deuces, the four by fours, the uh, the uh, tankers, you know, all of all of the uh, associated vehicles that that uh, we found in Iraq were just as much at risk. Uh, can you give us uh, an overview of, of where we're headed? Absolutely, uh, and it's. <laughs> Could be a, a complex answer, and I'll, I'll I'll lead off, and then I'm going to turn it over to uh, two of my guys, my, my wheel vehicle guy and and my, my track vehicle folks. Um, but if I could give you context, uh, if anything, over the last eight years, has the Army has proven its adaptability, and you mentioned some of it. We went in there with a small number of armored. Humvees, and that's less than up armored. We went a small number of armored Humvees. The vast majority of our Humvees uh, uh, during the Iraq invasion in the first days of Afghanistan were soft skin. Um, and the subsequent reaction, we, uh, you know, the, the enemy gets a vote in in what what we field and how we operate. Uh, and our reaction to the enemy was up armoring through a variety and a sequence of kits. And then the MRAP. Uh, your question is about the future. Uh, I'll start with wheel vehicles, uh, and, and my one-liner before I pass it to my experts are uh, we recognize that um, there is a future for the Humvee in some mission roles, especially in homeland defense with our uh, uh, homeland security and just uh, disaster response, uh, particularly with our, our National Guard brothers and sisters. There's a future for the Humvee, but what numbers um, still, still to be determined. Uh, there's, we also know that for combat, the Humvee is no longer, uh, no longer feasible. And so uh, my, my Colonel Barbosa will talk about the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle, the JLTV, and then the MRAPs. Um, the MRAPs uh, proved very capable, but with some limitations, for example, off-road mobility. Uh, and, and so there is still a future for MRAPs. Uh, obviously, with the kind of enemy uh, adapting enemy that we would be uh, fighting uh, in a variety of locations, improvised explosive device, rocket propelled grenades, uh, uh, all those things come together that you need uh, a higher degree of protection in a wheeled vehicle um, of, of for utility purposes, hence the MRAP. The MRAP has got a future in our route clearance. Uh, units, our engineer units that will drive down the road and uh, find and destroy the IEDs before they um, they produce casualties. Uh, the MRAP has may have uh, future mission roles uh, at echelons above brigade and in other locations, and certainly we're going to keep them in pre-positioned stocks. That's the wheeled vehicle uh, part of it. Uh, Mark, why don't you talk to it, uh, round out what I might have missed or uh, give it a little more detail, and then we'll switch to a track vehicle. Okay. Um, Chuck, uh, it's uh, Colonel Mark Barbosa. I'm the um, logistics division chief and, and the truck guy in the Army G8. Uh, it's a good question, and, and it's a question that, that frequently we get asked uh, when we go over to Capitol Hill, uh, or we'll just get questions from the Hill or a lot of the reporters, and I'm sure some of the reporters that are on this line um, I've already talked to. Um, uh, General uh, Kukolo, you, you, good answer on, on the MRAPs, but to put it a little bit in perspective, uh, the Army's tactical wheeled vehicle fleet um, is over 270,000 vehicles, 
We actually have more vehicles than the United States Post Office, which has vehicles in every every town in America. But anyway, I digress. Uh, the last time we did this is something General Spore threw in. Um, so, so with that, MRAPs um, were something that industry uh, jumped to and answered the call on when we needed protection against uh, explosively formed projectiles or what are commonly known as EFPs. But what you need to understand is when you look at a fleet that's 270,000 strong and you've got 20,000 MRAPs, that's a very small percentage. So I guess the bottom line is there is a role for MRAPs in the future, but as General Kukulo mentioned, they do have some limitations because we very, very, very quickly, using a number of manufacturers, uh, put those things together and we fielded those. And they did, they did an excellent job for us. And the fact is, they are doing an excellent job for us over there now, and they are protecting and saving lives. But we are going to bring them back, and they've got a role in the future of the tactical wheeled vehicle fleet. When you get to the other um, uh, portions of the fleet, you get the heavy, you got the medium, and you got the light. One, we're reducing that size of, of trucks, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, to to make it more nimble. But I'll focus on more on the the light tactical wheeled vehicles and and really the major modernization program from for the Army for the foreseeable future will be with the joint light tactical wheeled vehicle. As General Kukulo said, the uh, the Humvee for the most extreme environment has really met its match, and it's about maxed out. But it does have a role in the future, and it will for at least another 20 years. But we will slowly start to, once we, we uh, let the JLTV contract, uh, we will slowly displace the Humvees, the oldest ones obviously first, um, with JLTVs, because it'll have the protection. One of the things we're looking for uh, is protection like we have with the current MRAP, we want to have with JLTV, and industry says they can do that, and if they give us even more, that's even better. The other thing, or the last thing I'll leave uh, you with is, um, one of the things that we learned is we, we, we need to, for the tactical wheel vehicle fleet, focus on the very latest when it comes to armor. So in the last couple of years, with support from the Hill, we have built a line in the Army budget to explore the art of the possible, and constantly look at where we can go with armor to keep armor production going because we have a portion, if you look at our tactical wheel vehicle strategy, which is on a net, we have a, we have a need to buy armor, but we, wanna, we don't want to buy it all at once. We want to continue to buy it because what we got now is adequate, but we know tomorrow you know, someone's going to come out and find something that can defeat that, and we want to know what the latest technology is so that when we, we need to employ it quickly, we will have the very best out there. And so we've got a dedicated armor line and a tactical wheel vehicle portfolio that, that's focused on armor, and we didn't have that before the war. Did that answer your question? Uh, can you speak to transportation uh, 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 the truck tanker, um, the uh, the supply guys. Right, okay. It, well, it, it, a little bit of background. I'm I'm a Army uh, transportation officer, a logistician. So that is my background. Um, and, and if you start to look at the medium fleets, and those are the two and a half tons and five tons, or what we now refer to as FMTVs, 
or the family of medium tactical wheel vehicles, or the heavy fleet. And that's your line hauler, commercial-type uh, tractors that are green and going up and down the road, uh, pretty much stay on the hardball. Then you've got your Hemets and your PLS, and you've got your heavy equipment transporters that transport tanks. Those actually are doing very well for us. In part, when, when, when you experience a threat, the distance that you are from the ground and, and some other things play a very important role. And so we've done very, very well with those platforms. And like I said, we're going to focus a lot on armor to continue to upgrade and protect those things. Um, but as far as the distribution mission, is, which is what I think you're getting at, when you talk about tankers or you talk about trucks that carry cargo, they are very much uh, in our thoughts every day and in our plan when we, when we pull the budget together on what we're going to fund. So with that said, the major modernization uh, effort for the Army when it comes to tactical wheel vehicles is with JLTV, but we are upgrading the Hemets as they come back from theater. Uh, we are upgrading what's in the Guard, uh, uh, the Reserve, and the active units across the, the, uh, the planet so that if they have a legacy vehicle that's 15 or 20 years old and won't be able to carry the armor we need to put on it, and we are cycling it in, and in this case, the current contract is with Oshkosh for the heavy vehicles, and we're cycling in an area, and they're rebuilding it and making it the most modern thing we've got. So uh, distribution enablers on the battlefield, important to us and part of our plan. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Chuck. And I'll tell you what, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to talk track vehicles just so we can get the next, because it seemed like your question was, to was focused on, uh, on wheels, and, and I'll just allow the next question to be asked. So uh, you want to go, Dale? Hey, Dale Kissinger, go ahead. Good morning, sir. This is Dale Kissinger. Thank you for bringing the team. Um, I'm a former aviator, retired Air Force, and flew helicopters a uh, large part of my career. And I was wondering how the Army's planning on uh, dealing with all the combat uh, wear and tear, dust, high altitude, et cetera, on, the, on your fleet. Yeah, great question, Dale, and, and thanks for your service. Uh, uh, I... I got Bill Pardue, and right here, a great Army aviator. I think um, it, I, can, I can tell you that the oldest aircraft we got is the Kiowa Warrior, the uh, OH-58. Um, that's got the, the the highest modernization priority when it comes to uh, when it comes to rotary wing aviation. However, that doesn't mean that we're ignoring the uh, Blackhawks. Uh, or the CH-47s, uh, or the Apaches, and I'll let I'll let Bill fill in some blanks for you on what we're doing to to deal with the wear and tear. Yeah, Dale, my name is Bill Pardue. There's a, a couple things we're doing for modernization here. First off, uh, we're modernizing the fleets, uh, the Blackhawk fleet going to the Mike model, uh, the Snook fleet going to the F model, the Apache Block Three coming out soon, and all those aircraft are new aircraft or new airframes, which means I'm addressing the, the fleet ace driver, the airframe, so I'm putting on new airframes on the Blackhawk, the Chinook, and now the Apache, so I'm addressing the fleet age uh, and the wear and tear by putting new aircraft into the fleet. Number two is I bring the aircraft back from overseas I bring them back and I reset them, which means I sort of take them apart 
I look for wear and tear and cracks uh, and put on new components and repair uh, damaged components so I have a proactive plan to address the wear and tear on the fleet between new airframes and resetting the old airframes. And then we're going to start a program now to look much deeper uh, at the aircraft, take them apart even further, and examine the basic airframe components to see where their cracks uh, they're appearing in the airframe for many years of, 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 of wear and tear. So we believe between modernization of new airframes, resetting the existing airframes, and then a deeper look uh, of the airframes coming back from the war, we're trying to address the, uh, the fleet age of the helicopter fleet. Does that answer your question? Um, it sure does, but a quick follow-on. Does the budget uh, affecting how much you're able to do of this? Is it delaying it or impacting it? You can talk talk about 13, what we're doing there. I, I would say, sir, we're, we're maintaining a steady pace of modernization of all the airframes across, across the fleet so that we believe that we have uh, sufficient funds to address all the aircraft fleets through modernization and through reset uh, to keep helicopter fleet viable for now and for the future. Does that answer your question? Well, I, if, if I could... Uh, Bill's, Bill's correct. Uh, this is General Kuklo again. I'm sorry. Uh, Bill's correct, but I, we, uh, from a, uh, I tell you what, if from a consumer's point of view, um, there are there, the current budget request of 13. We, we do have a couple of delays in, in a couple of programs, right? I, I mean, it just just be, uh, it just get down to a level of detail. Um, we're just gonna the general's right. We're just we're gonna slow our pace. Yeah. Like it's like you're a long distance runner and you're getting tired. You slow your pace and you hit the water points. We're gonna slow our pace. We're still gonna invest in the helicopter fleet uh, to make sure that we keep it uh, relevant and viable. But we are gonna slow the pace of modernization based on fiscal realities. Yeah. We're, it, it's just. We're going to get to every aircraft. It's going to be. In, it depends on the program. It depends on the aircraft of uh, how long the the number. Uh, how long it will take to get to the number of aircraft we want to get to. And uh, if, if you're interested in that level of detail for 13, we we can give you that. But that's subject to marks and and everything else that's coming up. Uh, no, I, I understand, General, and thank you for your frankness. Appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Okay, uh, let's go to Sandra. Hi, General Kukolo. Thanks for having this uh, roundtable today. I wanted to uh, ask you about the network uh, program. I mean, this was uh, this has been identified as the number one priority for Army modernization, and uh, now you've been doing the uh, network integration exercises for about a year, and this was uh, the, the agile acquisition approach to modernizing the network. Now we're hearing some of the feedback from the NIE that what you've been doing is you've been testing programs of record that already existed, but we haven't really seen any big advances or any kind of game-changing type of procurement of new technology. Uh, can you address maybe how you see that process evolving and whether you think we're going to see some big breakthroughs coming up? Uh, that's a great question. I, uh, we're, we're always hoping for big breakthroughs. That's why we go out and 
throw this uh, stuff in the dirt and hand it to soldiers and have them set up company, battalion, brigade, command posts and, uh, and exercise the heck out of it. Um, quite frankly, it's the, the network integration uh, evaluations are, are doing what we need them to do, which is put promising technology in the hands of soldiers. Um, again, I, sorry to repeat myself, in the dirt to to see what works, what doesn't work, what can be tweaked. And and again, I think we're coming up on only our, uh, gosh, uh, really our, truly our, our second full up proper prep exercise coming up in May. Uh, so this is new to us, and, and I completely understand, and I'm not an acquisition guy, but I completely understand industry wondering, industry uh, standing off to the side perhaps with their arms folded, uh, wondering if the slide is worth the run, wondering if, uh, if the, uh, the internal investment uh, to get out there and test and be a part of it is worth it. W what's the outcome? And I I think we're growing with every uh, we're growing and improving with every NIE uh, that we have, and and understanding better how to properly prep, understanding better how to evaluate. Uh, and I think out of the last NIE, we had a couple of uh, uh, a couple of elements of evaluation that actually are going to come to fruition. I don't. Uh, did you want to add anything on that or? Uh, uh, it's Mike McCaffrey. I'm General Kuklo's communications guy in the room, I guess, and, and he's he's exactly right. We're working through how we do acquisition in association with the NIEs. I don't think anyone would be surprised to if I say that we don't like the pace of acquisition, but obviously we have a lot of federal regulations and constraints that we have to adhere to, our safety releases and security and so forth, for good reason. So the ASALT uh, community is heading up, looking at the results of the most recent NIE and acquisition actions associated with those results, and, and they're moving forward, uh, but it is a deliberate process. And at the same time, we are looking at and partnering with OSD on ways to uh, do acquisition more agilely in association with the NIEs. Yeah, oh, and OSD has actually been very open. Th th those who... Uh, properly provide oversight, have been very open to the, the way we're operating here. And, and when you can come to those who provide oversight and say, look, we put this in the dirt, this is what we discovered, here's the test data, here's, here's hard scientific uh, backing of, of, uh, of this capability, we think we, we would like to speed uh, through the gates to get to production. Uh, on these things, uh, and uh, can, can we do it, please? And and that's uh, you know get our senior leaders involved, and we get to it. If I could, uh, Greg, did you have a? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yeah, this is uh, Colonel Grace Kibicki. I'm the current equipping operations, and, and, and I would say that with the number one demand that we have, so far as the network is more of thickening the network. Um, there, there have been quite a few advances that came out of the first NIE that we pushed into theater to make sure that we were able to push um, as much data to the soldiers as possible. I mean, we now have to where we have full motion video, uh, we've got ability to talk on uh, uh, secure nets all the way down at the lower levels than we ever thought possible. 
Uh, we're using new technologies. We're, we're taking in WinT increment two uh, after this next run of uh, uh, the NIE. And I, I would tell you that the, the capability set that's being tested during this next NIE, we're already planning on how we can get it into the hands of the next deployers so that we can actually take it into theater as soon as possible. And theater right now is trying to make sure that it does fit with inside the networks and can work across all the coalition lines and, and enables and, and, and uh, thickens the network. Yeah, that, that, great, Greg. That, the operate, you understand, those may not know it, the NIE at Fort Bliss, uh, the, the operating environment set up at Fort Bliss and White Sands Missile Range, that is the Afghan operating environment. So uh, this, this, uh, this, to me, this is extreme. This is money extremely well spent and very relevant. But Sandra, your question was, do do we see any breakthroughs? Uh, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I'm a, you know, I've been in the Army 33 years and I'm a knuckle dragger, and everything I see is a breakthrough to me. But uh, I got to tell you, um, from the la if we've understood anything from the last eight years, it's we've got to build the best four-lane information superhighway from the two-star joint task force headquarters down to the lowest level possible, if possible, the platoon, if not the squad, for data, imagery, and voice, and be able to do that, to send all those things while on the move. And that's what we're trying to get to out there, uh, and we're having successes, and we're having some things we know we got to work on, uh, but I, I know I didn't answer your breakthrough question, uh, well, I mean, but, but maybe I, I we're heading in the right direction. Maybe I, can, um, maybe I can follow up real quickly. Uh, for example, do you foresee uh, an upcoming purchase or acquisition of uh, smartphones for G networks that the Army has been talking about so much and actually put it out in the field in, in, in large quantities for, for an entire brigade? Ma'am, it's Mike McCaffrey again. The answer to that is yes, we, we will extend the network to the dismounted environment for soldiers. Uh, PEO Soldiers is the lead for that. They're working on it. They're bringing capabilities and evaluating capabilities to every NIE to find the best, the most cost-effective uh, and operationally effective candidate. And they, they, they say it's a great venue to do that in association with the rest of the network, which is going to be out there because we want all these pieces to work together. Is there a purchase in the offing that we're aware of, or can we redirect the well, we, question to anybody? So we can redirect it to ASALT, sir. Yeah. Um, but the like I said, on the, you're right on the most recent NIE 12-1, which we got the report in January. Uh, ASALT is working on purchase actions uh, based on those results. Right. The, the, specific, the specifics of those purchase actions, I, I don't have them in front of me. I apologize, Sandra, but we could maybe OCPA or somebody, we could help you get to the ASALT person to answer that one. I would note Great. that in the 13 budget, we, we did put money in there and are looking for Congress to support uh, money to capitalize on any breakthrough technologies right. which come to the NIE. Right. We're budgeting for to take advantage of breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. and Sandra, Thank you very could, much. We'll, we'll, you bet. We'll go to Tom Seaman. Yes, I am here. Thank you very much. Um, I don't really, if the only question would be, uh, what are we doing with all, all the MRAPs and such that we brought out of... Uh, Iraq is that are they white elephants? That was kind of one of the concerns I remember. What, what are we doing with all of them? Are we revamping them in any way, or what's being uh, done with all those vehicles? Is there a yeah, program sure. to refurbish them and, and so on and so forth? The whole MRAP family. Go ahead. 
Hello, uh, Tom. Does that make it's, sense, uh, what I asked? It, it, it does, and there. This is uh, uh, Mark Barbosa again. Uh, there are uh, there are a number of folks out there that are concerned with what we are going to do with this tremendous investment our country has made in the MRAPs. I will tell right. you as they cycle as they cycle back, and and please understand that the vast majority are still engaged in theater. Uh, in Afghanistan, and there are some that are flowing out of Iraq or flowed out of Iraq. Uh, they're coming out of Kuwait, and all of those, when they come out of the desert, we send right now to Red River. There are some that are going to Letterkenny, but by and far, the vast majority, and we've got over 1,300 of them at Red River now, and they're being reset. So they're being pulled apart. Um, they're, you know, delayed desert damage uh, is being checked to see if any of that is present. And then in some cases, if, if they were some of the very earliest MRAPs that went over there, there are some things that we learned along the way, maybe a safety modification or an extra thing uh, or something moved. Any performance enhancements are then being added, and we are pushing those out to what we call pre to a couple of places. One is the pre-deployment training sets across the United States so soldiers can train on MRAPs before they actually deploy and then actually operate those in theater. So by and large, that's operated by Forces Command, and they've got in every major installation, they've got MRAPs where they train. And so that's one of our high priorities. The other priority is um, looking at some of the things that we're doing to to put those in organizations because the Army looked at this hard. And again, I'll go back to my earlier comment that we only have, when it's all said and done, about 20,000. Um, so we've got a very small slice of that back here in the States, and we're using all of those that are currently been reset and are back out into the field um, and, and, and used for training sets, and then we've got the rest of them going through that reset um, uh, process, and then we'll get pushed out again to, uh, to start displacing some of the older ones that are out there in the training sets. So we ultimately will look at putting some of the MRAPs, because we've already looked at the, the, the G3 has already validated that and briefed it to senior Army leadership that we are going to put them in certain types of units, and so they will start to flow into those certain types of units eventually. And then, as General Kukulo mentioned, a good portion of what we've got coming back will go into what we are calling contingency sets and be available uh, for things in the future since we won't have enough of them to spread them across the Army We'll have to sit there. We'll have to hold. We'll put some training ones out there. We'll put some that we're going to put in specific functions across the Army into specific units, and then a chunk of those will be put into uh, into contingency sets. Did that answer your question? Yeah, I think it did generally. Um, they're not being put into specific. They're not. You're not. We're not creating. You know, um, we got striker brigades. We're not creating a specific units with that type of vehicle. But it, no, um, sir. And, and if I could, okay. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but the but no, that ahead, was and, and and we had the brief uh, when General Odenero when he came on board, and um, and one of his uh, comments was, you know, you know, make sure that if you're putting it in a unit, that you know, and if it's going to take on a, a specific function, then say it's going to, you know, do something uh, similar to what the. Uh, a deuce and a half was doing that, you know, I almost have a, and it won't be perfect in every case, but, you know, I put five mm -hmm. MRAPs into a unit, I five trucks come out. So, you know, the, the older trucks. 
And, and so that's one of the things that we're looking at. And right now we get about 3,000 that we've got tagged to go into specific units. But for striker units and IBCTs, not so much. It's more going well, to no, if, if I could take it, Mark. It, hey, uh, Tom, there's not going to be an MRAP brigade. Uh, yeah, we're going through, not. Uh, I said, okay. We're going Thanks through, so we're much, going guys. Through, uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Uh, Dan. Yeah, thank you, guys. James. <clears throat> thank yeah. you. Um, just so, sort of looking at DOD's new strategy uh, that will draw down some of the active end strength and focus on the Pacific, uh, maybe using rotational deployments for international partnerships or even regionally aligning brigades. Um, with that in mind, are, are there any specific equipment or modernization programs that you sort of view as uh, especially critical or key to that strategy or, or your future posture? Well, I think uh, the as Kuklo, I, I think the the key one that crosses. Yeah, I mean, our, our marching orders are, are pretty uh, pretty clear from the from the chief. Uh, our, our our sizing guidance was very clear in uh, the defense strategic guidance, um, and with across the entire range of military operations, from disaster relief to build partner capacity to counterinsurgency. Uh, uh, the entire range of military oper operations, deter and defeat aggression, is what we equip for. And the chief breaks it down into our, our role is to prevent, shape, win. So if we believe that if we're equipping to win, we're preventing de facto. Um, and your question is about, okay, for the regional alignment, which would be a shaping mission, Build partner capacity. Go interact with a uh, a friendly army, uh, a friendly ground force. Um, assist them in their development, or share uh, share operating capabilities so we can interoperate as necessary in, in a future a future fight or a future response. Uh, those. What kind of equipment goes for that? I'll tell you what. Our number one equipment of priority, which is uh, the network, will 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 answer. It would be my my response to what what equipment um, is needed for for that. Uh, I, the whole the, the nature of the future battlefield is incredibly complex, and to deal with complexity, you want the greatest situational awareness. You want to be able to operate dispersed, and if you operate dispersed, you want to be able to uh, see each other, see any threat. Uh, and be able to communicate quickly uh, across all means and with some redundancy. Uh, when, when moving out to build partner capacity, uh, that would mean dispersed operations, that would mean varying terrain, uh, that would mean a variety of platforms that we might be in, vehicle platforms. And so uh, specific equipment would, uh, that would assist that would be the network, Quite frankly, all else, if we're equipped to win, uh, we can adapt and bring uh, whatever we need to to shape with our partners. Is that uh, is that okay for you? Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you, sir. Okay, could I go to Paul, Defense News? Yes, thank you, gentlemen, for, for speaking to us today. I appreciate it. Um, I know you have an AMPV Industry Day coming up later this month. Um, just curious, what you plan on? I'm telling the industry and just, you know, looking for a little bit of an update on the program. Um, also, uh, you know, moving into the future, how do you plan on integrating, you've spoken to this a little bit, how do you plan on integrating MRAPs, MATVs, double B-held strikers, 
um, into Brigade Combat Center. Thanks. Okay, great. Let me let me take that. For those that may not know it, uh, Armored Multipurpose Vehicle is the AMPV uh, that Paul's talking about. That would be the follow-on to the 113 uh, family of vehicles. If you're familiar with the armored personnel carrier that uh, I grew up in as a lieutenant, um, that's, uh, that's what we're seeking to replace because obviously from a, um, a protection and power capability, the 113 just uh, it won't work on the future, future battlefield. It's not used right now. Uh, so we're, we're looking for an AMP-V, a son of the 113. Uh, let me answer your second question first and then turn it over to uh, one of my experts, John Lee, about the, the industry day sort of focus. Uh, reference integration, as, you, as everybody on the net knows, we're going through um, a very careful look at our organizations, particularly our organizations at brigade level. We do not have a final decision yet. But part of that organizational look, let me give you an example of the things being considered. Uh, should a brigade combat team, whether it be armored or infantry, have three maneuver battalions, vice the two it has right now? Should there be an engineer battalion in these brigades? Uh, if you do that, uh, what kind of logistics do you add? Do you add an artillery battery? Those are the kinds of uh, discussions going on to include a look at higher level headquarters. Um, do the uh, w because of the regional alignment and the look for uh, building partner capacity, are our Army Service Component Commands, like uh, U.S. Army Pacific, uh, U.S. Army Central, uh, U.S. Army South, are they organized properly to do that sort of, uh, that sort of mission with the, the new focus we've received from our, our senior leaders? Part of all of this uh, organization relook is a fleet mix relook. And, and I'd like to answer your question specifically and say, yeah, uh, striker DVH is here, striker flat bottoms there, um, MRAPs over here. I, we're not there yet, but everything is on the table. Everything's on the table for several reasons. Uh, the two primary are versatility. I'd, I'd like to, if I've got a range of military operations I have to address, I want to be able to go into a counterinsurgency or stability operations environment, uh, but be able quickly to go to a higher intensity conflict uh, environment, uh, I'd, like, I'd like whatever I own to be versatile, uh, to be able to operate in, in those two uh, across the range of operations, and affordable, meaning, all right, uh, if I have MRAPs, do I need to buy um, a certain type of vehicle that would be that I currently have that is roadbound, um, and uh, would an MRAP fit a mission role uh, that another vehicle provides right now that I can just replace with current inventory? All those questions are being uh, analyzed right now, primarily at training and doctrine command, and with our uh, inside our G3 at headquarters, part of the Army, and they're gonna they're gonna develop the the fleet mix analysis. Quite frankly, is going to inform how much we buy, how much we keep of the kinds of vehicles that you're talking about. But, John, you want to talk about AMPV specifically? Sure. Uh, the uh, AMPV, Armor Multipurpose Vehicle, is, uh, is a new program that is trying to replace the 113 family of vehicles. And right now our uh, current status is that we're going through uh, analysis of alternatives, uh, which is conducted by TRADOX, uh, uh, TRAC, uh, I guess the, uh, that's the uh, analysis portion of the TRADOC command. And uh, they're 
analysis is projected to complete sometime this summer, and we're hoping to get to a some type of an acquisition decision late in uh, FY third, uh, late in FY twelve, or uh, first quarter of thirteen, to be able to move out on some type of a, uh, a request for proposal, and that's the reason why the PM is preparing the industry industry day. I believe the first one will be in April, and then the second one will be followed in uh, in August. The, the current track for the AOA is to confirm the uh, the CDD requirements. That's the capability development document requirement for protection and mobility level. So when those requirements are sort of confirmed through the AOA process, the PM should be a pro the project manager, the acquisition community. They should be able to to sort of inform the industry on what are some of the key attributes we're looking for in this vehicle so they can be prepared to respond to the RFP sometime in about six to nine months. Uh, it's all about getting the requirements right. And I, I tell you what, uh, one of the things the Army, you know, I, I always get frustrated when people outside the organization take my acquisition brothers and sisters to task because they've made incredible strides in, in doing their best to be agile and adaptable. Right, An example is this AMP-V. Um, in all, all of our major purchases, we're taking two tracks, and not, not in all, in most of our major purchases, if it's feasible, we're taking two tracks. Is there a non-developmental vehicle, if you will, off the shelf? Does something exist right now uh, that can be uh, examined? Uh, does it meet the requirements? Does it inform the requirements? Um, uh, while we also may ask industry to do technology development, uh, is, should, is there something new that can be created with current technology? Uh, and so it's a double track to see what is uh, most affordable and, and versatile and can meet the requirements. But, but it's all about getting the requirements right, because I think in the past we might have, uh, in the distant past, we might have written requirements that um, uh, became irrelevant through age, and changes on the battlefield. But uh, does that answer your question, Paul? Uh, it does. That's a quick follow-up about the, the fleet mix uh, review. Um, I mean, obviously, over the past 10 years, a lot of new vehicles have, have come into the fleet. You know, we didn't have MRAPs, MATVs, or Strikers before. Um, is there some tension there in trying to keep some of this stuff um, just because we have it? <laughs> and it would be it would be expensive to, to divest? I mean, is, is that something you guys are... are, are Kind of working through, like what do you really need, and and, and what is really going to be um, um, adequate for the battlefield of the future. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's appropriate tension, uh, understanding uh, the fiscal conditions we're in right now. So it's um, it's not it's not settling. It's not settling at all, but it's uh, it, it's if if we have something that works or can be modified, uh, and and then asking the question: Does is the modification cheaper than a new build? Because in some cases it's not. Um, uh, it, does that work? So so to answer your question, yes, there there is tension, um, and and also a sense of urgency to divest what we no longer need. A great sense of urgency, and that now that's that's not just for vehicles; that's for all property. Um, uh, it, what quick reaction capability did we develop in combat over the last eight eight or nine years that we want to keep as a program of record? Uh, that's also part of this uh, this healthy tension 
uh, as we uh, as we, we kind of take a knee and sort ourselves out with new organizations um, and uh, and our uh, our focus, uh, our, our new strategic focus. I'll pause there. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, who is yeah. speaking on the AMPV? Just so we could quote him correctly. Go ahead, John. Uh, this is John Lee. I'm the uh, the action officer for uh, combat vehicles and heavy brigade combat teams. That's Thank Lee you, uh, Lima Echo Echo. First name John. Um, actually, I, I don't know. I heard a couple of beeps that other folks might have uh, joined. Uh, otherwise, I'll go back to uh, Chuck Simmons. Do we have uh, who did I not get to with a question yet? Go ahead. Sir, this is Tony Bertuca from Inside the Army. Uh, thanks for talking Tony. to us today. Right. And uh, Sebastian Springer, too, with Inside the Army. Right. I'm glad you guys are Inside the Army. Yeah, we try. <laughs> Roger. Go, go ahead. Uh, my, my question, sir, went back to the uh, the fleet mix. Uh, I, I guess this is all being informed by the, the force mix, force design study uh, that's currently with the Secretary. Could you shed a little light on maybe when the implementation of this uh, is going to start, you know, when, when we're going to start to see the implementation of some of these initiatives? I know uh, the big one was going from two maneuver uh, battalions to three. Uh, there's some fires uh, stuff, I guess, that's, that's on the table. Can you get into some of that? I, I, I can tell you that uh, we, we don't have a decision yet. Um, uh, analysis uh, analysis is near complete. I, you know, I, I'm speaking out of turn on whether or not the analysis is complete. I, I know for a fact that um, those those decisions, particularly the two battalion, three battalion decision, will result in further reduction in numbers of brigade combat teams if we go in that direction. That's a really significant decision that is still with the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army, and and, and so I. Uh, I'd be uh, I'd be guessing uh, we're still pre-decisional on that. Uh, over. Any idea when then it's going to start to yeah, impact sorry. your life? Yeah, you asked when, uh, and I'll tell you what. I'm I'm sorry, guys. I, I am not privy to when that decision will be made. Um, okay, thank you, sir. You bet. Sorry, guys. Uh, anybody else after inside the army? Anyone we did not get to yet? Okay, silence on the net. What I'll do is I'll go back around the horn in case anybody has any follow-ups or different questions, and I'll just take it in the order we started. Uh, Chuck, are you still on the line, or do you have any other questions? Uh, I'm on the line. Um, I am not uh, with a military background, so I guess I'm a, I'm, I'm, I've gotten a little confused here. Um, the striker, That's okay. The striker, I thought, was a replacement for the 113. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about the 113, the striker, the MRAP, and and how you transport troops in a combat situation, and 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 uh, is the AMPV going to be the the answer to that? Uh, that would, I guess that's no. my question. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I understand. I understand your. Certainly understand your confusion. That the striker was never a replacement for the 113. It was a medium weight. Uh, it started out started out as a medium weight air deployable. I can fly it on a C-130 aircraft for rapid deployment. Uh, infantry carrier. So uh, uh, you know, it, again, wheeled vehicle, uh, higher, uh, great network and communications capabilities. Uh, uh, Great gun mount, 
um, a, a very fast moving. You, you can move a large number of troops. Striker Brigade is a pretty big brigade. You can move a large number of uh, troops at a rapid operational maneuver rate. I mean, for example, um, in the in the in, in the I think it was 2005 or 2006. I'll get the year wrong, but in Iraq, uh, Striker Brigade was sent to reinforce. They went from north to uh, central and south. An entire brigade just picked up, got in their strikers, and moved uh, and, and reinforced an area um, at, at, at lightning speed overnight. And that, that was the capability. That was what General Shinseki and the folks uh, who uh, envisioned the striker. But the key part then was it was air deployable. Um, since that, with the changes on the battlefield, the striker's gotten very heavy. Uh, the striker double V hull is what we have in Afghanistan right now, and uh, Chuck, that is a uh, um, that is a, uh, a a modification to the striker that uh, gets that greater uh, soldier safety. I the the strikers are in brigade combat teams, um, and I uh, and forgive me, I, I just a moment of distraction. What uh, since you know it's not a one one three replacement. Uh, where, where would you like to go with your question? Well, I, I guess, so, so, where I'm going to go with the question is, the Striker then is a unique vehicle addition to the vehicle fleet versus a replacement for an existing vehicle. Yeah, the Striker, the, the Striker capability is actually resident in a Striker brigade. Now, could we use the Striker in another mission role? Absolutely, and it may it may come to pass after this fleet mix analysis is done that we see strikers in other places than the striker brigade. But uh, Chuck, very quickly, we got an armor brigade combat team that's currently M1 tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles, uh, and we have striker brigade combat teams, and we have infantry brigade combat teams. Uh, and infantry brigade combat teams obviously uh, move on foot or by truck, uh, and then obviously we have the um, uh, obviously, we have the airborne and air assault. It, it, all, all different ways of getting to the fight for different different reasons, and that's why the striker is called an infantry carrying vehicle. You don't put the striker in a stand-up, knockdown, drag-out, uh, armored vehicle fight. It's a great way to move troops and get them there and be a, uh, a platform for a suppressive weapon. Okay, so but the Bradley is your... The Bradley is your is your is your fighting vehicle for troops. Bradley is the infantry fighting vehicle. That's affirmative, and that is why one of our priorities for modernization is called the ground combat vehicle. It's the uh, the follow-on to the Bradley, and that's because the Bradley has some um, the Bradley has some limitations right now. It cannot carry a full squad, a full infantry squad. We have to break up the squad into two different Bradleys just because of the room in the back. Uh, and quite frankly, um, we're about maxed out on power for the network that we want to put, the communications capability that we want to put on these vehicles. And also, uh, we'd like to improve the protection on the infantry fighting vehicle. And that's why we're looking for a, a, a new ground combat vehicle to replace them at some point in the future. Thank you. Okay, you bet. Um, Dale, still there? I am, sir, but uh, my question was answered. Thank you very much. You bet. Sandra, any follow-up? Or perhaps off the net? 
Tom Seaman, still there? I'm still here. Uh, thank you very much. I do not have any follow-ups. I appreciate your time and information. You bet. Thanks. We, I might have worn you out. Uh, Dan, Dan, you still there with James? <laughs> I am, but I'm all set, sir. Thank you. Okay, appreciate it. Uh, Paul, anything? Uh, yeah, just quickly. I just to touch on, on the issue of um, manned unmanned cargo lift going into the future. Uh, what are you looking at? What do you, you know, what do you think is going to work? What, what do you think might come up in the next few years? Yeah, I, I got Bill. I don't know if you have anything, but uh, I, I could tell you that we're watching. All right, first of all, there's no question it's an item of interest. Moving cargo. Uh, whether on ground or in the air, is of great interest to anybody that has to fight on the ground. Uh, and, you know, the number of number of convoys you have on the road, uh, it disrupts the population, disrupts traffic, also puts your troops at risk if the enemy wants to get at you, um, either disrupting your supply line or, or inflicting casualties. So obviously, very interested in the capability. We're watching with great interest the Marines' testing of the unmanned Vertical cargo transport, um, and uh, and uh, Bill, you got anything on that? We're we're, we're just yeah. watching that one. Yeah, this is Bill Pardue. The general is right. We're we're watching the Marines' use of unmanned aircraft for cargo autonomous operations. Uh, the Army right now is not actively using that skill set uh, overseas. We're using uh, the current manned fleet to move. We're on the battlefield, so we're and watching. The precision, the precision parachute is precision really, parachute. really uh, yeah. uh, so, working out great guns in uh, in Afghanistan. So I would say right now the the, the Marine Corps is uh, taking the lead for this. Uh, I would only surmise that if there is some degree of success with that, uh, I'm guessing the Army may uh, jump on that activity. But right now, that's not our primary focus right now for unmanned aircraft. Yeah, fiscal realities and common sense. You know, this is not, and also that's nothing new, us watching the Marine Corps develop something and then us deciding whether or not we want to throw in at some point. That works for many, many programs. I mean, ammunition, um, uh, JLTV is a partnership with the Army and the Marine Corps. Just about everything, because of common sense and fiscal reality, every every major program, uh, the spending of the taxpayers' dollars is very carefully examined to see who else can use it if one service brings it into the uh, the joint forum and the joint readiness oversight joint requirements oversight council pardon me JROC, um, uh under the the leadership of the vice chairman is is huge and uh, and is uh, is taking all of those on making sure that we're we're spending our money wisely and if there's commonality that can be um, shared you know, we go for it. Uh, and, and gang, we got about uh, two minutes left, so I, I, I've talked too much. And let me just see if is there anybody in my team that wants to add anything that uh, has not been said about anything in particular? Yeah, Mark. Just a quick one. It's Mark Barbosa again. Uh, and when you talk about uh, unmanned aerial lift, I, if I could just throw in there, there are many ways we get at that. One of which is uh, airdrop. So. We've got uh, a, a program called JPADS, uh, where we drop cargo from high altitude, uh, joint parachute aerial delivery system. Right. Uh, we drop uh, cargo from high altitudes, and, and we've got parachutes that can steer to, and I won't give you how close, but we can get them to remote out, outposts. So we would do that along with any unmanned 
um, things that uh, General Kukulo had talked about before. But this is a system that's already in place. And the, uh, the other side already knows we've got it, and we've been using it very successfully for the last couple of years. Hey, thanks, gang. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close out here just to be respectful to your time. Uh, my guys and gals are fired up. They could stay here all day with you, but I won't let them. The, uh, I, yeah, my one closer is uh, the, the team sitting in there, as I, as I look around the room, the team sitting in here, uh, they're in charge of keeping – uh, the capabilities for decisive land action healthy through materiel solutions, the equipment side of things. And I got to tell you, if anything, it's personal to the people doing this. Everybody in here has served in combat in some way, shape, or form. Everybody in here has uh, seen equipment work or not work. Everyone has seen the results of uh, of enemy attacks and and so if anything what you have now resident on the army staff and working these tough complex fiscal issues is a a passion and a desire to get things right because we've been there we've seen it uh and and in many cases my folks have children in the service and deployed and so uh, yeah, i hope everybody realizes this is well beyond any kind of uh mathematical numbers game. Uh, we bring our best military advice with a, uh, with a sense of passion, uh, as well as the common sense it takes to execute programs. So I thank you for your time today, and uh, we'll try and keep up the information flow out to you. Feel free to, uh, through the Office of Chief Public Affairs, feel free to ask us any further questions or if we missed something or you didn't understand it or you needed a name of a person on the net. Thanks for your time today. We're out here. Thank you.